Born to Run. Springsteen's book. Also Netflix special, I understand. 2016 memoir. Springsteen tries to talk in, uh, about many of the issues, and a lot of them have to do with his father. I talked to you a little bit about last time about his dad, Doug, never went to a single one. No, no, that was Elton John. I remember talking to you about this at some point. Well, right before Bruce's son, Evan, was born in 1990, his dad took a trip 400 miles to see his son, to, and he went to L.A., and it says, over beers at 11 a.m., Doug Aaron uncharacteristically made a small peace offering, and he said, Bruce, you have been very good to us, and I have not been very good to you. The interviewer interviewing him about the book asked, did you ever hear the words, I love you, from your father? And Bruce says, no. The best you could get was me saying, love you, pops. And then his father's gruff voice would say, uh, me too. Even after his father Doug had a stroke and he'd been crying, he'd still only get out, uh, me too. As we turn to the words of the end of Romans 8, a chapter we have been on since September. We started in September with the Father's words to us, not, eh, me too. But there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we move from there being no condemnation to no separation of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's how we end this. We are not serving a God who has trouble declaring his love. You are not only loved, you are being told you're loved. John Stott says that we're climbing a grand staircase here, and this is the top of the, 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 the step, and it's the question, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And it is from this top of the stair we see and hear the thing that we most long to hear, the thing that energizes God's movement in the world, and that is love. And specifically, atop of this staircase, the Spirit turns our gaze and, and moves our face towards seeing this love of God and hearing these words from God. And we hear from the God, not, eh, me too, but I love you. There's actually nothing more in this sermon today. And I'm not going to let you off that easy. But the whole point of this is inseparable love. And so why would we stop here? Because he's saying it over and over and in lots of different ways. Let's stand at the stair and let the Spirit's inspired words guide us through the nooks and crannies of this kind of love he has for us. That he's generous to tell us. And let it sink in to our hearts, to our ears, our whole body so that we would wonder and worship about this God who loves and this love that protects and preserves us. So basically, I have two main points and then a kind of final point. And it's all about love. So the first part is strong love. He starts with that rhetorical move again where it's actually a question, grammatically, but it is not a question. 
Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ or the love of Christ? It is a shout from the banister of the top of the stairs that increases a question after a question, right? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? And the answer is no, 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 right? It is a declaration, not a set of questions. And it displays with a force that hushes the mouths that anyone would have an answer to it other than clearly nothing. And the first three will stick together They're somewhat connected, and it's tribulation and distress or persecution. Tribulation or trouble has an illusion of being smashed down. A tribulum was a weighty sled on the threshing floor that would separate the grain and the chaff as it was went over, the wheat and the chaff as it was going over. And so it has this kind of pressure feel to it. And distress and crisis is, is, and hardship is a lot like that other word, but the word means something, um, uh, uh, instead of being smashed, it's more like squeezed, uh, confined in a narrow, oppressive space. You might say, in a tight spot, right? We'll use that term. And persecution or ridicule, more on the hard, hard side of persecution, is less of a metaphor and more descriptive of a person trying to do harm to someone. What I want to do is start with third, the third one and move us back to the first, persecution. Very few American Christians suffer persecution today, at least not in the sense that Paul means. Being called a jerk or a bigot because of your beliefs does not make you persecuted, especially if you're being a jerk and a bigot. Persecution is the risk of life and livelihood. Reputation at its least form. It can take on the form of ridicule or exclusion and its lightest form being misunderstood. And yet we have brothers and sisters all around the world that suffer persecution in the way Paul would describe it here. People getting beat up for converting, losing their families and jobs, and lives, or livelihoods. And it's been fascinating. I would dare you to go read some of these stories or hear from some people who have been persecuted. And what you will find out is that they rarely ever are struggling with experiencing the love of God in the middle of these things. We do theoretically, but we don't understand. So take it from their voices, and you will see the intimacy and love that they experience in this. Somehow, In the upside-down kingdom, they do that. And yet there is distress, right? The day in and the day out, the pressure and tight spots of dishes and dead-end jobs and family dynamics and finances and raising children and pursuing health to try to retain your good friends and make new ones, following meager budgets. Friendship, life is hard. Listen, the Hyatts should have had a 35-second conversation there. It took 25 minutes to have our conversation because those three people are crazy. <laughs> no, because it's hard, and we feel the distress and the pressures. 
marriage struggles, mission struggles. I think about Angie who's been trying to, to coordinate this stuff and get us so that the witness of God would be known to all that we care about the poor because of the love that Jesus has for us. And she's struggling and trying to get more people. And not, this is not a, a, a guilt, guilt trip on you guys. There's stuff like it's happened in the city for the overflow shelter in general where permits are trying to have and get things ready. There's just so much stress or struggle. It's hard. And then there's these tribulations. Oh, wait, it's hard, but, but Jesus, the very Son of God, has fixed his love upon us that nothing is ever going to separate his love for us in the middle of those things. And then the tribulations. It's been hard for some of you as we've gone through Romans 8 because there's a lot about God's sovereignty and control over the universe in this. We talked about God's power and uh, his powerful love and his ability to make everything work for good, even bad things. And for some of you, the tribulations that you've experienced are awful and horrid. And the loss of career or health or loved one or the mistreatment by friend or parent or spouse or stranger, the debilitating mistreatment, the true and severe pain. And sometimes in the middle of that, you may have the question, is God punishing me if you're in Christ? Is, is, this, a, is this, did I do something wrong? Have I deserved this? Did I earn this, whatever, this tribulation? But from the top of the stairs, what the Lord says to you is anything that is allowed to happen is born not just of the sovereign rule, my sovereign rule of the universe, but the supreme love I have for you, body and soul. In horrible histories or tight spots, he has loved you with his father's love, and you are an heir of his in heaven for eternity. Then Paul switches to the next three phrases, and it, there seems to be about scarcity and, 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 and safety, or the lack of safety, and they're famine and nakedness and danger. And famine and nakedness are pretty self-explanatory. In the West, when we have droughts, uh, we have them all the time, but it makes our grass die and our food a little bit more expensive. But in the ancient world, and in many places in our world right now, famine means famished hungry to the core. And nakedness is not talking about, it's talking about severe poverty, not like clothes you don't love, but not having anything to cover your body in the cold. Tattered blankets, no shoes. And he moves into this famine and nakedness, this kind of natural disasters or natural realities of, 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 of poverty and brokenness in the world. And he goes into human disasters, what he calls danger. See, don't kid yourselves. You know this if you look at any history of any people anywhere. With scarcity comes danger. There is a reason that violent crime rates throughout history are located in communities of scarcity. Any history, anywhere with any people group. Scarcity breeds brutality, but it does not separate us from the love of Jesus. I was reading how Christians have handled like natural disasters and violence, less of the persecution type, but that how when it affects the entire community, even the Christian church, and the whole is having to deal with it. And I was reading the opening of a sermon of a reasonably famous preacher after the Twin City or, or, or the Twin Towers fell in 9-11. And I thought this was an amazing sermon intro. He goes in after 9-11. He goes to his congregation that's bewildered and not, you know, you remember what it was like, or for those of you who do? 
what, what, what would you say as a pastor? I was an associate pastor. Thankfully, didn't have to address the congregation. And he walks into the pulpit and he says, shall I try to strengthen your hope because of politics and comfort you that America is durable and will come together in great unity and prove democ- the democratic system is strong and unshakable? Shall I try to strengthen your hope with military and comfort you that American military might be unsurpassed and, and, can, and turn back any destructive force against the nation? Shall I strengthen you hope financially and comfort you that when the market opens on Monday, there will be stability and long-term growth will happen and preserve the value of your investments? Or shall I just strengthen you psychologically and send you to the webpage that says self-care and self-help following disasters to maintain the view of the self as competent? And he said, the answer to these things is no. No, no. And the reason I will not do anything is because none of them are true. American's political system is not imperishable. It will fail one day. The American military cannot protect you from destructive forces. Your financial future is not certain, and you may lose everything. You are not safe from the next kind of terrorism, which may be more pervasive and even more deadly. And psychological efforts to feel competent and strong in the middle of this are useless, if not fatal because I was writing my own sermon, I didn't get to read the rest of the sermon. But all I could think is, he's doing something like Paul's doing. Hey, is it going to be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? I'll get to sword. I know I haven't covered it yet. No, nothing. The only thing I can give you hope in is not that any of these bad things will happen to you, but then even in them, the strongest thing that is true about you and about God is that God loves you in Christ Jesus. Anything else is a false security I would give you, and it's not true. What I have for you is love, which is a promise that brings you eternal security and present security, knowing that it's true. Think about Mother Teresa. Think about the work she did and with whom, the, the work with whom she did it. The biggest disease today, she says, is not leprosy or cancer, it's the feeling of being uncared for, unwanted of being, unwanted of being deserted and alone, not experiencing divine love or divine mercy. That is the greatest disease. You know what suffering does. It starts to pile up the reasons we cannot see the love of God. And so Romans 8 is at the top of the banister screaming to us in love, no, no, nothing. None of these things can keep God's love from you. None of it. I want you to hear the activeness of this. This is not a response that's, uh, me too. This is God declaring it to you. Do y'all know who Dallas Willard is, maybe? He's a, um, a contemporary, he's probably, um, he may be alive, but maybe not, a little bit older. He's a, he's a, a, a kind of a, an amazing um, writer about the interior spiritual life and experiencing the love of God in Christ. Um, I don't know if you know this, but his, his mom died at a very young age. And when he was a little boy, he was scared often. And at night, he'd go to his father's bed, and he'd climb up there or ask him if he could climb up there, and he would. And his father, and he'd look at it, he'd, he'd ask his father, hey, daddy, is your, is your face turned toward me? His dad would say, yes, you are not alone. 
I am with you. No, 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 Dad, is your face turned toward me? Yes, my face is turned toward you, and I love you. And it's when that, sometimes even with his hand on his face, that he could fall asleep. What the Lord is doing in Romans 8 is saying, yes, my face is turned toward you. I love you. You are safe, no matter what happens. We have the seventh one. We have to deal with those, that sword. Sword love. The verse ends with the seventh one of sword or sword. And then he goes on to talk about Psalm or quote Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The sword, this last of the seven terms, takes all these other six things and puts them to the extremity, right? Where Christians are executed or murdered in their faith. It has a double meaning of street violence sword and state execution sword. I want to be clear to you. The idea of martyrdom in Christianity is the norm. It happened in the early church, as Stephen was an early martyr, and James as well, and others followed, so much so that one person wrote, soon there was a trail of Christian blood to mark the progress of the gospel from land to land. This is why the apostle brings it back into the greater, bigger story of the Bible from Psalm 44. He quotes scripture itself. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as a sheep to be slaughtered, talking about God. For your sake. This is a standard, not the only standard, but a standard. And for us, we're not quite used to or thoughtful about that. We, we, we don't really live in this world in the West as much or in America as much, though Mother Emmanuel and Sutherland Springs would tell you a little bit of a different story. Our Christianity, and I don't say this with judgment, I say this saying we We live in a softer Christianity that Paul has in mind here. We just do. Me included. But in the history of the church, it was counted a privilege to be a martyr. Martyr is the same word as witness. I remember talking with a Middle Eastern friend in town who after, um, in 2015, those 21 Egyptian martyrs that were murdered, right? He said every one of them would have counted it a privilege to die for Jesus. I was reading an article yesterday that said, that, that, talking of one of the, the daughters, or maybe it was the sons, I, couldn't, I don't remember. He saw, uh, he, remember, he saw the video, right? They videoed it. And he said, I saw my father's last words was the name of Jesus on his lips. And I was proud and I rejoiced. Remember what he was watching. So Paul sees this norm and he says, hey, even death, even being killed as a follower of Jesus, not even that can blur this view from the top of the stairs that I love you, that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate that. 
even as the swords were unsheathed and waved toward their necks, that nothing could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know what they said, all 21 of them, over and over again as it was happening. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And they chanted that to their deaths. But this doesn't happen because Christianity is a glutton for punishment. <clears throat> I didn't help to cover that. <clears throat> it doesn't happen because we're pushovers or we don't care about life. That's not what this is about. No, we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It happens because of the love of Christ is part and parcel about a lamb being wrongly headed to the slaughter. The lamb of God who is put to death, not by a sword, but by the cross, and submitted to all of that for the sake of love. The reference to he loved us in verse 33, it's a past tense. It's a reference to something that's already happened. It's alluding to the cross. He loved us. How? I read from an amazing sermon by Barnhouse here. The love of Christ was eternal, for it was that love which moved him to leave heaven's throne and come down to this earth to redeem us. That love was deep, for it was that love which urged him on to the end of the road as he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. That love was broad, for it was that love which opened the arms of God to all the world of sinners and made it possible for the very ones who nailed him to the cross to be forgiven and come back to the Father's heart. And that love is unchanging, for it is that love which comes to us today in the midst of our need, whatever it be, and takes us out of darkness and into light, and from doubt into certainty, and from death unto life. Suffering is not evidence of God's absence, but participating in his presence. Thank you. What an awkward silence. <laughs> you got to think about the upside downness of Christianity. Christ proved his love to us through his suffering. How can our suffering possibly separate us from him? Conquering is not our best life now, but our sacrificial love of God and neighbor. The love of God doesn't remove you from suffering because suffering is how the love of God is manifest in the world. We are more than conquerors because of the resurrection hope we have. Our slaughtered bodies don't prove our being abandoned. They prove our union with him. And friends, I have no shame for us in this. I promise you, I have no shame for us in this. Part of it is us being formed in a softer Christianity. And I have no desire to like create some fear about some great American persecution uh, about our own martyrdom. I don't know what's gonna happen. But I can tell you this, that we're not well trained for this. We're just not. We're ill-prepared to set that mindset before us for the slaughtered and sacrificial 
life for the sake of the love of God, both to be endured, but also to martyr, to give testimony. They are the same word. Friends, we are often, (laughs) we're ready to fight because of like minor inconveniences. Because they don't like our particular tribe. And we're ready to go after them instead of take it on the cheek for the sake of another. I told you a local shooting club offered, uh, uh, offered me and other pastors a conceal and carry training for all clergy. And all I could think is, I don't need to be taught how to shoot people. I need to learn how to take a bullet for a person. And I really need to learn how to take a bullet for my enemy. Maybe my military background, I may already have skills in that area. I'm just saying that that's not what I need training. All my instincts are self-defense. All my instincts are to keep that pain away. I must learn a new, a new way. Shoot, I'm ready to fight over Facebook. And it's not because I want to die, but it is because I want people to experience this crazy love of the one who took a bullet by the way of a cross for us. The one who took the sword in his side, the one that we deserved. And done in love. You know what's happened in one of the communities of the 21 martyrs? The church has grown by leaps and bounds. The faith of the people is strengthened because the sweetness of the love of God has been stronger than the bitterness of death itself. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I don't really want to participate in it. I am not asking for this to come on us. I actually don't want it, and frankly, I don't like how the math works. But this is what it is, that we live sacrificially for the sake of others, and we bow and love and sacrifice for their sake because we're so loved. To wrap up, The last kind of point is that it's a love that will not let me go, this sacrificial, saving, and secure love. This closing statement of 38 and 39, it's a montage of all the possible scenarios that could be a rapid fire of incidences and and cosmologies and and, um, circumstances and like heavenly things and it's, it's this incredible thing and all of it is is saying everything else is impotent compared to the power of God in his love. We could go through them one by one like the others, but I think the forcefulness is best as a, as a, as a cascading waterfall over you and not as a, a dissection. And so hear this, for I am sure that neither death or life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Read that to one another. Read that to yourself over and over again. Memorize it. The gospel begins and ends with love. It has in it repentance and faith and sacrifice and suffering all in the middle, but it begins and it ends with love. Oh, Billy Graham said, when we preach the atonement, it is atonement planned by love, provided by love, given by love, finished by love, necessitated because of love, and when we preach the resurrection, of Christ, we are preaching the miracle of love, and when we preach the return of Christ, we're preaching the fulfillment of love. That's right. So let me end with a story and then the rereading of the waterfall. 1987, 
Northwest Flight 225. It was in August. The flight was taking off, and soon after, crash landed. If you remember, it was on a highway. 147 of the 148, or 148 of the 149 people died, including passengers and crew members. And one four-year-old girl, Cecilia, lived. When someone was interviewing her, after the medics, um, or trying to talk to her, after the medics had taken her back, they thought for sure she was actually in one of the cars that was hit, because everyone else had died. Well, the medics turned and explained what happened. See, what happened was Cecilia's mother, Paula, when she knew it was going to go down, unbuckled her seatbelt, knelt before her, strapped her arms up inside of the seat, the, the, the seat and lay there, or knelt there, to protect her daughter. It was a love that would not let Cecilia go. Through the flames, through the impact, through it all. A mother's love that would not let her daughter go. Nor the tragedy, nor death itself would keep her from loving her daughter. This is the love of the Savior. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ, Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to be convinced again and again that you love us. Even when we don't love ourselves. Even when we love ourselves too much. By your spirit, would you do that work? 